to remain standing as we read our passage for this morning. We're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, and Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is the word of God. May be glorified at the reading of his word. You may be seated. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning asking that you would give wisdom uh, as we enter into your word, Lord, asking that you would uh, open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, and our hearts to receive your word, that we might walk in obedience to your truth, and so glorify and honor you in all that you have called us to do. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen. So this morning, uh, this week, this new year, uh, we are beginning a new series through the book of First Timothy. Uh, and I have uh, the distinct pleasure of getting to introduce that, that series, uh, this, this journey through this book. Um, I'm hoping to do a good job. I'm, I'm setting up uh, Daniel Routh as he's coming next week. Pastor Routh, as he's, he's coming and preaching the next two Sundays, and then those who will come after him. Vision and a clear path through this book. Uh, and so my goal this morning is to hopefully do that is to give a solid, sound introduction to 1 Timothy that kind of sets the tone for us as we walk through this letter together. Uh, the way that I want to do that uh, is first uh, to consider uh, 1 Timothy as a whole, the book as a whole, uh, to just kind of set it within its context and give ourselves an understanding uh, for 1 Timothy, then to turn our attention uh, to the main actors we see in 1 Timothy, which would be Paul and Timothy, uh, and take a look at both of them, and in particular the relationship that they share with one another. And then from that, uh, Lord William, the, the, the exhortation this morning, uh, the, the kind of uh, application, main application this morning is that I, I want to challenge us, and I hope this, the, the word challenges us, um, to do exactly what we see Paul do with Timothy and with others, which is invest himself. Uh, Paul invests himself in Timothy uniquely and uh, uh, deliberately uh, so that uh, his gospel ministry and his gospel work does not end with himself. Uh, Paul invests in Timothy so that the work would carry on. And it's my hope this morning that after considering this, we too would see the importance for each of us to be investing ourselves in others uh, so that our gospel work and our gospel lineage does not die with ourselves, but is, um, is carried on and lives on beyond our own years. So let's get right into it, and let's start by considering 1 Timothy. Uh, Timothy, uh, 1 Timothy, as we know it, is one of the 13 Pauline epistles, and it was most likely written after Paul's first uh, Roman imprisonment, in between his first and second Roman imprisonment. Uh, within Paul's letters, uh, 1 Timothy is part of a smaller group uh, of three letters known as the pastoral epistles, along with 2 Timothy in the book of Titus. Now that term or that name, pastoral epistles, is a relatively newer term, one that's kind of applied to these books within about the last two or three hundred years, and it is slightly misleading, a little bit misleading, and that is because uh, Timothy and Titus were not pastors, especially not as, as we think of people serving within the pastoral role. Uh, Timothy and Titus were instead personal representatives of the Apostle Paul, and as they functioned in their unique ministries, Timothy in Ephesus and Titus in Crete, uh, they functioned with and under uh, the authority of the Apostle Paul. 
Uh, and so most likely, Timothy, who's in Ephesus at the time of 1 Timothy, is, is over a group of house churches that are there in Ephesus. Ephesus is a large city. We'll talk about that more in a moment. Um, so they're not called pastoral epistles because Timothy was a pastor and Titus was a pastor. Rather, they're called pastoral epistles really because of the content of these letters, because of what we find uh, in these letters, right? As Paul is writing to both Timothy and Titus, he is writing in a very pastoral way, kind of a shepherd shepherding shepherds. And he's writing to encourage and exhort uh, these co-laborers, these young co-laborers, as they set about doing the work that they are called to do. Uh, it's interesting to point out how unique the Pauline epistles are within Paul's writing. Uh, they are so unique indeed that oftentimes, or I shouldn't say oftentimes, but uh, Pauline authorship has been called into question. Um, whether or not Paul actually wrote them because the grammar, the vocabulary, the style is so distinct when you compare it to his other epistles. Uh, for instance, there are 175 words found in the pastorals that are not found anywhere else in the New Testament. So 175 words that are not found anywhere else in the New Testament. And with that, you can also add that there's 131 words that are not found anywhere else in any of Paul's writings. So all told, there are 306 unique words that are found in the, the pastoral epistles by themselves. Now, some of you might get geeked out about that. Uh, some of you might think that's uh, a ridiculous stat, but I give it to you because some people are stat people. They really appreciate the stats. But the fact is that the pastoral epistles are unique within Paul's writings, and it's the content of them that drives that moniker. Uh, and it's not only that Paul is writing in a pastoral, uh, or pastoral manner as he's writing to Timothy and Titus, but the actual content of these letters has immediate pastoral application. Right? In these letters, Paul is exhorting his fellow laborers and he's giving Timothy and Titus clear instruction on the organization and the function of the local church. Paul is telling them how the church should be organized and how the church should function and what the church should do. And so there's immediate pastoral application for these letters as well. Now, given the fact that Paul speaks so much about the local church, especially within 1 Timothy, um, we shouldn't look at these as personal letters in the same way that we would Philemon. When we look at Philemon, Paul is writing a, a very intimate and personal letter to an individual meant to communicate deliberately with that individual. Uh, Paul, not to say Paul's not communicating deliberately and intimately with Timothy, he certainly is, but he includes so much information about the local church and how the local church should be organized. It's, it's most likely uh, the case that Timothy was meant to share this letter with the churches that he was overseeing, that, that it wasn't something that he just kind of put in his jacket pocket and held on to and kind of read to himself, but one that would be shared uh, so that the church would have a clear understanding as well of how Paul was instructing Timothy to order and govern the local church. Now, as we look at 1 Timothy, uh, Paul covers a range of topics within 1 Timothy, all aimed at equipping this young man to do the work that he is called to do. I think it's worth pointing out uh, that Timothy, this letter, opens and closes with a charge from the Apostle Paul to Timothy. So if you have your Bible open to 1 Timothy and you look at chapter 1, verses uh, 18 through the beginning of 19, Paul says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. And then Paul, as he's bringing this letter to a close, in chapter 6, verse 13 and 14, he says this, I charge you in the presence of God, 
who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's clear that Paul is, uh, Paul has a, a clear vision of what Timothy is to do. Uh, we know some things about Timothy, right? He's young, uh, possibly a little timid. And here the Apostle Paul is strongly, strongly encouraging and exhorting Timothy to do the work that he's called to do, to unwaveringly keep the faith and hold it with a good conscience. As you read that closing charge there in chapter 6, um, I, I, don't think you could, I don't think you could structure uh, a, a more kind of uh, powerful, poignant, uh, strong kind of charge. Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. And then he references the testimony that Christ gave before Pontius Pilate. Right? You think about that, that event there where Pilate kind of looks at Jesus in disbelief saying, do you not understand that, that I kind of hold life and death, your life and your death in my hands? And Christ, in the face of that, that, uh, that situation is unwavering in his testimony, unwavering in his commitment to the Lord. And so Paul is like saying to Timothy, hey, look how Jesus stood up in the face of Pontius Pilate, and I'm charging you in the presence of God to do the very same thing. And so Paul takes very seriously the role that Timothy has within the church, and Timothy is to take very seriously the role that he has within the church as well. Following the initial charge, Paul gives Timothy a warning concerning false teachers, a point that is brought up later as well in chapter 4 of this book. And in some ways, it should not surprise us that Timothy has to deal with false teachers and false teaching. Uh, from the very beginning of the church, uh, the church has been assailed and attacked uh, by false teachers. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun, right? And so the gospel goes out from the very, very beginning. And from the very beginning, there have been people uh, who Peter describes in 2 Peter as people who seek to twist the scriptures to their own destruction. And so Paul gives Timothy the charge to be on the lookout for false teachers, to proclaim the gospel, the true gospel in the face of false teaching. Uh, and then uh, Paul goes on to uh, touch on issues of prayer, uh, the proper function of men and women within the church, qualifications for those who lead and serve in the church, all the way down to how to handle widows. In fact, he gets rather uh, uh, deliberate and uh, extensive in his, in his uh, communication of how widows are to be taken care of, and that obviously makes uh, sense given what James says about pure and undefiled religion, right? James characterizes pure and undefiled religion as caring for widows in their times of affliction. And so Paul in 1 Timothy is writing to Timothy to encourage, exhort, and equip him to do the work that he's called to do. Now moving from the book uh, down to the main actors in the book, we have Paul and Timothy. As we look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul introduces himself, as he does in several of his letters, as an apostle of Christ Jesus. If we look at verse 1, Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope. Now this might seem uh, slightly unnecessary, Right, especially since Paul's writing to Timothy. Uh, I think Timothy has a pretty good idea of who Paul is and what Paul does. And so it might seem a little too formal or overly formal or unnecessary for Paul to say, hey, it's me, Paul, the apostle. You remember me, Timothy, right? It kind of reminds me of the time that I first called Annie uh, after uh, when we first almost started dating. Uh, she rejected me when we were in uh, school together, but I'm persistent. And uh, it was Christmas break. And uh, I wanted to call her because I wanted to try to set up a date for when we got back. And it's kind of like I felt like I had to reintroduce myself because I, I thought she had forgotten me. You know, like, hey, it's Dan, Dan from school, the super handsome guy, drives a truck. You remember me, right? Uh, and, and so we might think Paul's kind of doing the same thing. Like, hey, it's me, Paul, the apostle. 
he's not, right? I think there's, there's deliberate reason why Paul is doing this. Again, if we think about Timothy, who's given this, this unique responsibility over the church, who is not a pastor, but rather is functioning as, as a personal representative of Paul, and this letter is not meant just for Timothy's eyes, but is meant to encourage the church and exhort the church, then it makes good reason for Paul to reinforce the reality of his apostleship. Not only to encourage Timothy in the role that he's called to do, but also to remind the church that, hey, this young Timothy that I sent to you is the Timothy that comes under my authority and with my authority, Paul the Apostle. Now, what's interesting is uh, when we think about Paul's apostleship, right, we know that Paul's apostleship didn't come about in the conventional way that one becomes an apostle, right? And when I say apostle, I'm using that in the kind of the full-fledged title sense of the word, right? So Paul's apostleship didn't come about as, as typical apostleships did, right? Paul was not one of the original 12 who Christ during his incarnation called to himself, who walked with Christ, who ministered with Christ, and who was commissioned by Christ uh, at his ascension, right? In fact, Paul uh, was not <coughs> really even on Team Jesus to begin with, right? Paul was a persecutor of the church. He was the primary persecutor of the church, Right? Breathing out threats and, uh, and persecutions against the church. Paul was, as he describes himself in this very letter, the foremost of all sinners. But we know that Paul, uh, as he is going to Damascus to find Christians uh, to, to bring back to Jerusalem for punishment, Paul is overcome by Christ. And uh, Paul, as he describes in Galatians, what he, what he says in Galatians, that uh, a time came when God... Uh, who had set Paul aside from before he was born, was pleased to reveal his son to Paul, called Paul to himself to proclaim Christ. And so Paul on the road to Damascus, he's overcome. He encounters Christ. He says, who are you, Lord? He says, it's me, Jesus, the one that you're persecuting. And so Paul is called into service by the Lord. Here in Timothy, Paul condenses that whole kind of, uh, that whole situation, that whole event by saying that his apostleship came about by the command of God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope. Now this is interesting as well because this is the only time that Paul references his apostleship in this way. Uh, in fact, this word command, Paul's the only word to, only uh, writer in the New Testament to use this, this word command. And it, and it comes with the, the full uh, force and weight of divine initiative and divine imperative. And, and outside of Galatians, in, in my opinion, I think this is the strongest assertion that Paul is, could make a, about the divine origin of his apostleship, right? If you think about Galatians, Paul, Paul is really deliberate in establishing the fact that his apostleship does not come about by the will of man, but comes about by the will of God, right? And if you know anything about Galatians, that makes perfect sense that Paul does that, that he establishes that right from the get-go, and then he talks about the gospel that he preaches doesn't come from man, but comes from God. Outside of Galatians, I think this is the strongest assertion that Paul can make for the divine origin of his apostleship by saying that it came about by command, divine initiative, divine imperative of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. Now, not only does this solidify the certainty of Paul's apostleship, but it also speaks of the way that Paul views his own apostleship. Right? Paul doesn't see his apostleship as something he has taken to himself. Right? Paul didn't just one day decide, you know what, I'm going to stop persecuting Jesus and become an apostle. I mean, like self-ordained apostle. We, we, we go to Africa, I work with TLI, and we go to Africa a lot, and I bump into and I rub shoulders with a bunch of apostles and bishops. You wouldn't believe how many apostles and bishops I get to hang out with in Africa. And all these guys, uh, apostles and bishops, somehow became apostles and bishops because they decided to become an apostle and a bishop. Remember one day I was having a conversation with a class, and we were in Ephesians, and they were talking about this, this five-fold ministry, and this guy's like, well, I'm an apostle. 
And I said, well, what do you mean by apostle? He's like, well, I mean apostle like the Bible says apostle. I was like, well, that's great. Let's test your apostleship, <laughs> right? So like kind of according to the Bible, you had to be an eyewitness to Jesus and his ministry and or be commissioned directly by Jesus. Do you fall in that category? No. Okay, great. Well, since we failed step number one, maybe you're not really an apostle, right? But Paul, Paul doesn't take his apostleship to himself. Paul's apostleship, he says, came by divine command. And so he sees it as something that's been entrusted to him not something he sought to take for himself, right? It's, it's really interesting. Uh, you know, Paul, Paul sees his apostleship not as, as optional, right? It's not like he could be or couldn't be. Paul is, biblically speaking, and from his own mind, he's under compulsion to serve in this role, under obligation to serve in this role by divine command and by divine imperative. Uh, when Paul is giving his testimony in Acts chapter uh, 26. Um, he's giving his testimony before King Agrippa. And, and as he, he kind of unpacks his testimony, he's talking about the vision he had. Uh, he gets to verse 19 in Acts chapter 26, and he says this. He says, therefore, uh, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Right? Paul understands Christ coming to him, commissioning him, and calling him as a divine command to which he must obey. Like, he must obey this command. In Romans, right, Paul talks about being under obligation to preach the gospel, both to Jews and to Greeks. Why does he use this language? He uses this language because his apostleship is not some uh, optional reality. It is what God has called him to, and Paul is going to be obedient to that call. And so Paul is an apostle by the command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our Lord. He has been called and commanded to be apostle and he is going to be obedient with the call that's been put on his life. We can stop there for just a moment and allow the weight of that to sit upon us for a second. Paul, called by God, commissioned by God to proclaim the gospel, sees disobedience as non-optional. Right? You obey God, you do what God calls you to do. I don't think it's too much of a stretch for us to say that we too have been called by God to proclaim the gospel to go to the ends of the earth, to make known the greatness and the glory of Jesus Christ. And we are under, like Paul, obligation to preach the gospel. Matthew 28, Acts chapter 1, Mark 1, 14, 15, uh, Luke 24, all these times that Christ talks about preaching and proclaiming repentance, this is, this is not an optional reality for us. This is not something we get to weigh and say whether I want to or not want to, something I might want to do or not want to do. We are, we are under command from Christ to proclaim Christ. And honestly, it's not a burdensome command. You know, it's, like Paul, it's not like Paul walked around the world with his hung head low, right, crying and sobbing and sniffing because he had to do this thing. He rejoiced in the calling he had. He marveled at the calling he had, right? He talks about here. He's like, I'm the foremost of sinners. I'm the greatest sinner. Why in God's green earth would he call me to do this? But he did rejoice. It makes known his patience, his kindness, his mercy, and his goodness. And so the command that God levies upon us to go out and proclaim the gospel is not a burdensome command, right? Jesus doesn't give burdensome commands. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He gives us commands that create life in us, create joy, create happiness in us. We who have tasted of the living water that flows from Christ should so rejoice in what we have taken part in that proclaiming Christ is just a natural response to that. 
So we walk in obedience because of what he's done for us. We joyfully walk in obedience. And so let Paul, his willingness to obey the divine command on his life, be an example and an encouragement and an exhortation to us to walk in obedience as well. Joyfully walking in obedience, as the Apostle Paul, I would argue, joyfully walked in obedience as well. As we continue to look at this introduction, Paul addresses this letter to Timothy. Timothy here in the text he describes as his true or genuine child in the faith. Right? And that is not an exaggeration in any way. Uh, Timothy was most likely a convert or was converted under Paul's first missionary journey as he traveled through the area and proclaimed the gospel. Uh, and then later as Paul comes back through on his second missionary journey, uh, he meets Timothy, as Arnie read in Acts chapter 16 this morning. And uh, I mean, I think Paul is rather impressed with Timothy as he meets him. Right? In Acts chapter 16, we're told that Timothy uh, is uh, a disciple who is the son of a Jewish mother and a Greek father. Uh, both his mother and his grandmother, we find, were instrumental in his upbringing as examples of faith in the Lord and as ones who were committed to instructing Timothy in what Paul calls in 2 Timothy the sacred writings that he had been acquainted with uh, ever since his youth. When Paul finally meets Timothy in his second missionary journey, Timothy is a disciple of some renown, right? The brothers there in Lystra, they speak well of Timothy, uh, so Timothy is already uh, in his youth, probably a, a, an early teenager, middle teenager, already setting an example of what it is to follow Christ and trust in Christ and believe in Christ. And as Paul see, meets him, he clearly sees something in Timothy, and he starts to take this young man on mission with him. And Timothy is exposed to a lot of stuff. All right, so Timothy gets, gets commissioned, pulled in by Paul to be part of his uh, traveling band of mercenary missionaries going from town to town, proclaiming the gospel and tearing down the kingdom of Satan. And Timothy is with Paul as he goes to Philippi. Uh, what happens in Philippi? Paul and Silas are beaten and dragged into prison and thrown into prison. This is, this is Timothy's like first day on the job, right? This is talking about learning on the job. Like this is day one. He like, he leaves town all excited with Paul. It's gonna be awesome. We hop on a boat. We're floating over to Philippi. This is gonna be great. And all of a sudden Paul gets beat and thrown in prison. Right, you can kind of imagine Timothy kind of standing in the background, kind of like going, whoa, like, what have I signed up for? Right? And then Tim, Paul and Silas are out of prison, and uh, we see the Philippian jailer, and Lydia, that conversion, the church, and uh, the first church in Europe is, is planted, and it's born. And then uh, from Philippi, where do they go? They go to Thessalonica. How do things go in Thessalonica? Not great. Paul starts to preach. The Jews are starting to believe. Other Jews do what? They lead a revolt. They threaten Paul's life to the extent that Paul has to flee and run to Berea. Get to Berea, more noble Jews, things are better. But who shows up? The Thessalonians, because they're like, oh, you're not going to get away from us that easy. This is day two on the job for Timothy, right? So we've gotten Paul arrested. Now we've got a Jewish revolt, and they're coming after us, beating us, trying to kill us. They're chasing us from town to town. Uh, they leave Berea, and they go to Corinth. They leave Corinth, and they go to Ephesus, what happens in Ephesus? The gospel is bearing so much fruit and it's turning the world upside down as it's prone to do that people are abandoning idol worship, right? They're abandoning idol worship. They're abandoning the worship of Artemis, whose temple's there in Ephesus, to the extent that the silversmiths are losing so much money, they're starting to see a dip in their profits because of the gospel that they have a riot. They have a riot. They drag Jason out of his house, drag him to town square. They beat him. This is day four on the job for Timothy. Right, so Paul brings Timothy along, and in the midst of all this, Timothy is being exposed to this, to, to this like crash course in gospel ministry with the Apostle Paul. 
Um, when we find Timothy here in 1 Timothy, uh, Paul has left Timothy, now probably uh, mid-30s, right, around mid-30s. Uh, Paul has left Timothy in Ephesus, right? If we look uh, at the beginning, uh, verse 3, he says, I, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach different doctrine. Now, Ephesus is a major city. In fact, it was the leading city uh, of Asia at that time, a major city in the Roman Empire. It sits at the mouth of a river, had a, a harbor, um, had a major temple, and it was a major crossroads for trade, for culture, for commerce, and for religion. And here's young Timothy in this city, this major city, with all kinds of thoughts and ideas and uh, uh, religions, all kinds of things floating and flying around, a city where, again, some years back he was with Paul and there was a riot because of the gospel ministry. Uh, and we can imagine it would be easy for someone who's a little bit younger, uh, possibly a little bit more timid than the apostle Paul, uh, to get lost in this city, right? to get lost in this city, to get lost in the work, to get lost in just the, the overwhelming nature of everything that's happening and everything that's going on. And so throughout First and Second Timothy, Paul offers strong encouragements and exhortations to this young Timothy to set an example and to be faithful to preach the word of God. And so that's the book of First Timothy. That's Paul and that's Timothy. Now let's just kind of turn our attention a little bit to consider the relationship between these two guys. Uh, as we look at the, the, the two men here, uh, and just in this short introduction, it's, it's clear that there's an intimate relationship between Paul and Timothy, right? right? Paul considers Timothy his true child in the faith. Uh, Paul loves Timothy. Uh, he sees great potential for Timothy, reminding Timothy of that again and again. Uh, and as we look at this relationship that they shared with one another, there's, there's really two uh, points, two things that I want to draw our attention to this morning. Uh, the first of those is the centrality of the triune God in this relationship. The centrality of the triune God in this relationship. Um, Paul and Timothy, as we look at verses 1 through 2, are hardly the center of these verses. Uh, while they each receive one mention here, one mention of Paul and one mention of Timothy, the triune God is mentioned or referenced five times. And you see that in the first two verses. Listen again. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. The, the center of their relationship and the center of their interaction with one another is God. What binds them, what holds them, what unifies them, what, what, what sets them on a similar course going in the same direction is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Right In this short introduction, Paul says he's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God. Uh, he's exhorting Timothy uh, with grace and mercy from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. All, like at the center of this relationship, beating at the heart of this relationship, is the Lord. Right? It is God who is Savior. It is Christ who is Lord. This introduction is unashamedly theocentric and Christocentric. And it fills all that Paul and Timothy do 
and all that they are called to do with eternal significance. Paul understands his apostleship as an apostleship of Christ Jesus. He understands Timothy's role as serving under God our Savior and Christ our hope. Everything they are doing is focused on and centered on the God who has called them, the God who has saved them, and the God who is their hope. This fills everything they do, everything they do, with a seriousness and a significance that goes far beyond themselves. Right, far beyond themselves. Paul, as magnificent as he is in his missionary work, is not the center of the story. Timothy, as wonderful as he is in service to the gospel and in service with Paul, is not the center of the story. Christ is the center of the story. Christ is the center of the relationship. It is Christ that brings them and binds them and keeps them together. And Paul clearly understands this as he's writing to young Timothy and fills this short introduction with an overwhelming reference driving Timothy's eyes and Paul's own eyes to the Lord and the Christ who has called them and saved them and is their hope. Because Timothy is going to need grace and mercy and peace from God. He's going to need hope. He's going to need assurance of his salvation as he goes and he fights against wolves in Ephesus seeking to protect, love, and shepherd that congregation there. And Paul lovingly drives Timothy's eyes there and he drives our eyes there as well. And this reality that Christ is at the center, that God is at the center, <coughs> excuse me, sets up the other point that I really want to draw our attention to this morning. And that is the way in which I said earlier, Paul invests himself in Timothy. Paul brings Timothy along to invest in Timothy so that Timothy can carry on the work when Paul is gone. Uh, as we go into 2 Timothy, where we, we won't get, uh, well, maybe we will after 1 Timothy, but we go to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. Paul says this. He says, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Uh, 1 Timothy was written, I said, between Paul's first and second imprisonment. 2 Timothy, Paul is clearly in Roman imprisonment, and Paul clearly sees the end of his life coming. Uh, Paul clearly knows that the end is drawing near, and he writes to young Timothy during this time, encouraging him and exhorting him to take what he has heard, what he has seen in Paul, what he has experienced as he's journeyed with Paul, as Paul proclaimed in the presence of many witnesses, unashamedly proclaimed in the, uh, proclaimed in the presence of many witnesses, he says to Timothy, you now go and entrust that to others. Just as I entrusted you with this gospel message, just as I brought you along and I entrusted you with the truth of the gospel, as I was entrusted with the truth of the gospel by Christ, so now I'm entrusting you that you will go out and do what I did. You will find other men, faithful men, to whom you can entrust the truth of the gospel so that they can go out and do what I did and you did and find other faithful men who they can entrust with the gospel who will do what, what I did, what you did, and what they did. Paul has a clear sense, a clear understanding of his mortality and a clear understanding of the importance of Timothy carrying on the gospel ministry that began with the Apostle Paul. In fact, Paul closes 2 Timothy this way. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by the appearing of his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort 
with complete patience and teaching. Stop there for a moment. Where did Timothy learn to preach the gospel? Where did he learn to reprove, rebuke, and exhort people with the gospel? Where did he learn that? This is the interactive part. He learned from Paul. Like Paul, what did Paul do? Have you read any of his letters? What does he do in Corinth? He reproves, he rebukes, he exhorts. What does he do with the Romans? Like he preaches the gospel. Like he watched Paul preach the gospel. He watched Paul, through the word of God, reprove, rebuke, exhort, and encourage people. So he learned from Paul. He learned by watching Paul. Now Paul says, Timothy, I'm charging you to do the very same thing. To go out under the banner of the gospel, preach the word of God, in season, out of season, no matter what comes, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure a sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of the evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Again, where did, where did Timothy learn to be sober-minded? Where did he learn to endure suffering? Remember day one on the job? He watches Paul get beaten and thrown into prison. What did Paul and Silas do in prison? They grumbled and complained. You're right. Yeah. Paul was like etching marks on the wall, like day one, you know, like roughing it up. What were they doing in prison? They were singing hymns. <laughs> like, like, where do you learn to endure suffering? You're standing outside the prison going, wait, is Paul singing? Like, is he singing a hymn right now Why he's in prison? Like, the, Timothy learned to endure suffering. He learned to be sober-minded. He learned to do the work of evangelist. Like, he, he watched Paul preach the gospel. He watched him skillfully preach the gospel. We have two sermons from the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. Two complete sermons. We have one in Acts 13 and one in Acts 17. Acts 13, Paul is preaching to Jews. Uh, he's preaching uh, uh, in the synagogue. Acts 17, he's on the area of Pagus, and he's preaching to complete pagans. And it's brilliant. Uh, I encourage you to go home this evening, read those two sermons, and just see how dexterous the Apostle Paul is. See how quickly he can go from quoting in the synagogue complete Old Testament passages, building these beautiful connections between Christ and the promises that were made. And then he can go to Areopagus and he can quote pagan philosophers and poets and do the same thing. It's brilliant. It's amazing. And he did this, and Timothy watched this, and he, and he saw this. And then so Paul says to him, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul knows he's getting ready to die. But you know what's not going to die with Paul? His gospel ministry and the impact of it, because he has entrusted that to Timothy. And Timothy will entrust that to others. Like, have you ever stopped for a moment to think why we're here? Like, why we're, why we're in this room, gathered together as brothers and sisters in Christ, worshiping the Lord? I mean, there's lots of reasons. God's sovereignty, his kindness, his grace. I, your car uh, <laughs> got you here. I, one of the most simple answers is because Timothy did what he was supposed to do. I mean, Timothy did what he, he was told to do. Like, have you ever thought about it for a moment? Like, we stand in this long lineage of faithful men who have entrusted other 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 faithful men to preach, proclaim, and do the work of the ministry. Like, we're here because Paul was faithful. Timothy was faithful. 
Those who came after Timothy were faithful. They were faithful to do what they were called to do, to preach, proclaim, and to entrust others to preach, proclaim, so that gospel ministry and lineage and life extends from generation to generation to generation to generation. When I, was, uh, when I wore a younger man's clothes and I had less gray in my hair, I was uh, pastoring a church in, in Augusta, Georgia. And it was a common situation, unfortunately, in, in the SBC, in that a church had been started and had been there for 40 or 50 years or so. The neighborhood completely changed around the church, and the church had done nothing to kind of engage this changing neighborhood as time went on. So that at the time I came there, <laughs> uh, it was a room that probably sat 400 people. And I think at our lowest point, at our lowest point, we had 14 people in there. Now, I don't know if you know what disparaging feels like or disheartening feels like, but it feels kind of like standing in front of a room that seats 400 people and there's 14 folks there. <laughs> like, it's kind, of, it's kind of disheartening. And uh, I, I had, I, there's a whole backstory there, but I, I wanted this church, I wanted this church to continue to faithfully engage the community with the gospel, right? And so I came up with this whole plan. I had this whole idea. And, and I gauged the, or the congregation. And what I said to them, I said, don't, don't let 60 years of gospel ministry die with you. Don't let it die with you. This church has been here for 60 years proclaiming Christ. Don't let your generation be the generation that buries it. And unfortunately, um, things did not go as we wanted them to go. And that's the problem, is that sometimes people don't see beyond themselves. They don't see beyond themselves, and they don't see beyond their own situation. But we, as followers of Christ, are called to have a broad vision, a big vision that reaches far, far beyond ourselves and our own situation. We are to have our eyes generations down the road saying, how can I entrust people so that generations down the road the gospel is being faithfully and fully proclaimed. Now, for many of us, that starts right at home. Many of us, that starts right at home with our own children, right? We are entrusted with children, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, and what are we to do? We are to teach them the Word of God. We're to speak of it when we sit down. We're to speak of it when we rise up. It's a conversation at the dinner table. It's a conversation in our rooms and our, in our times together. We proclaim Christ to our kids, and then we send, by God's grace, our children out into the world as arrows flung into the world to proclaim Christ, so for many, it begins right at home with our, our kids, our own children, but it doesn't stop there, right? Uh, the, the Great Commission is calling all of us, Christ is calling all of us to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. And this happens not just in our homes, but it can happen in our workplaces. It can happen in our extended families. It can happen at the grocery store when we least expect it. But if we don't have a vision beyond ourselves, if we're not thinking beyond our own moment and our own situation, if we're not looking generations down the road, like Paul was looking generations down the road, saying to Timothy, find other men that you can entrust who will teach others also. Paul's at least looking three generations down the road as he sees his life coming to an end. But if we're not looking past ourselves and our own situation, then we are not being obedient to the call that's on our lives to proclaim Christ to the ends of the earth. We are all called to be like Paul, investing ourselves in others who will invest themselves in others. And that doesn't stop until we, like Paul, can say, you know what? I'm being poured out as a drink offering. My time's almost up. I'm done. 
Like you don't get to stop. There is no retirement in this thing until Christ calls you home. And so as we look at the Apostle Paul and we look at Timothy and as we work through this letter and we see Paul pour himself into Timothy, it's an exhortation to all of us that we should be, by God's grace, pouring ourselves into others so that our gospel lineage, our gospel work doesn't stop with us, but generations down the road, people that we don't even know could be able to point back to us and say, this is why I'm in Christ. This is why I'm in Christ. You know, my prayer for my family is that generations down the road, generations beyond what I can see, will glorify God, honor God, worship God, far beyond myself even now. Will love him with more love than I could possibly have, that it will just expand and grow and multiply. But if we're not thinking that way, and if we're not looking that way, and if we're not having gospel mindset that way, then I would say we're acting in disobedience to what God is calling us to do. So let us be encouraged this morning by this relationship. Let us be encouraged by this letter. Let's be excited as we get to walk through it together. And let us be encouraged all the more to find others to whom we can pour ourselves into for the sake and the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you and thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, that Paul was faithful. We thank you, Father, that Timothy was faithful. We thank you, Father, that generations and generations and generations of people we don't even know the names of were faithful. They were faithful to take the gospel, to proclaim the gospel, to find others to entrust with the gospel so that those others could entrust others and so on and so forth. Father, may we not be found unfaithful. But Lord, may we continue in this long, beautiful string of obedience to the gospel that you have woven throughout history. Lord, may our names be added to that, we pray that we'd be faithful to find others to invest in, to pour ourselves in, so that the gospel of Christ might be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.